Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches make a better business and a better world. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting to those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. We'll find out how circular principles can create value, increase resilience and reduce risk to make a competitive, sustainable organisation. You'll find the show notes and links at www.circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and useful resources. I'm recording this in the Yorkshire Dales on the 5th of September 2019 and we've reached a mini milestone of 10 episodes. That means our first Best Bits compilation. It's perfect listening to spark your ideas for building a better business in 2020, though I'd suggest you have a notebook handy. This would be a great episode to share with someone new to the podcast or new to the circular economy. I enjoyed putting the episode together and reminding myself of the inspiring conversations I've had with some of the amazing people who are making the circular economy happen. Have a listen and find out for yourself. We've interviewed seven people from the fashion, food and industrial sectors and talked to experts in eco-design, industrial symbiosis and circular economy strategy. We started with an introduction to the circular economy asking why it's important, and then we explored the circular economy components from my book, product design, sustainable inputs, process design, recovery flows, and circular business models. We talked about the business benefits of those circular business models and the benefits of reuse, repair, remaking, and recycling. In episode two, we dug a bit deeper into the linear economy, looking at the global issues and other challenges facing businesses of all sizes in every sector. Then we looked at how you could deal with some of those challenges. I talked through how you could do a risk assessment using the circular economy components to help you think about opportunities for your own business. After those two intro episodes, we've been talking to people involved in making the circular economy happen. We started in episode three with Tom Harper, Tom kept plugging away at the circular economy project he believed in, whilst facing scepticism from his bosses and colleagues. Tom works for Unusual Rigging Limited in the UK, making and supplying stage engineering equipment for theatre, live entertainment and big events like the Olympic ceremonies. Tom explained how he saw opportunities to manage the company's equipment and assets more effectively, and to develop a passport system for materials. Unusual installs a wide variety of specialist equipment, including flying systems, chain hoists, overhead crane and handling systems, lighting bridges, trussing and much more. Some of the installations are permanent, but many are for specific projects, like theatre shows and live music events. I managed to get a position as a resource manager uh, in 2013, so six years ago now. and my, my initial response in the, the, the role I was given was to sort of manage the company's assets 
has a fleet of around 3,000 electric chain hoists and around 11 kilometers worth of truss in order to fulfill the needs of its customers and clients. Uh, and at the time, it had a very clunky piece of software, which I won't name for commercial reasons, um, which did a reasonable job of creating a relatively efficient material loop. So it's a higher company. So you could argue, as I discussed with the managing director of the company, when I said to him I was going to do the circular economy MBA and try and optimize circular innovations within the organization, he said, well, we're already circular. We're a higher business, which is a valid point. However, it was obvious to me that there was a lot of scope for development because it might be kind of relatively efficient at material loops, and I wanted to make it effective at closed material loops. Which there is a distinct difference. Historically, we never knew where anything was, so it would be booked out on a job. There's no tracking of it invariably things just wouldn't return and you didn't know where they were. And because of the volume of jobs going on, it was impossible to keep a track. So I was given the opportunity to investigate some new software, which ended up being bespoke software with a company based in Aberdeen, software company. And, the, and I gave them a very distinct brief. I said, we don't want to just track our assets. We want to track the impact of those assets and because we can, because we're making this bespoke. And we want to be able to know where everything is at any given time and have like a, like a material passport for every single capital asset that was valued highly enough to have its own passport. So to date, we have 70,000 or thereabouts items in our inventory. Um, the majority of that 70,000 are made up of batch items, but there are about 20,000 items, which are serial items difference between a serial is that it has its own serial ID number. So they literally have, when you click on that, when you type in their serial number into our software, you get a little breakdown of its, of its journey, of its history, literally like a passport. Oh, it was on this job on this date, booked in by that person. It was re-inspected and refurbished and maintained on that date. And I was excited because I thought, well, this is an opportunity to really implement some of the circular um, ideologies or circular innovations and circular principles that I've been learning about, like maintenance is better than buying new and refurbishment of resources is better than virgin raw material extraction. And it was better, it began to show that it was better on the bottom line as well. Tom went on to explain how tracking all the equipment also reduced the kit that went, went missing because it wasn't controlled. Some items, like the electric chain hoists, can cost over £1,500 each. By reducing losses of those, plus lots of smaller items, Tom's project contributed to healthy bottom line savings. Unusual developed ways to te test the functional performance of equipment, checking tensile strength, using MRI scanning and tracking duty cycles, so they could check whether the equipment was safe for reuse or for continued use in its existing installation. At first, the staff at Unusual were a bit unsure about Tom's plans, but they quickly got on board and have been helping come up with ideas for improvements, including developing more circular forms of transit packaging. Unexpected benefits included engagement from key suppliers, now working towards their own circular economy solutions.
and glowing endorsements from customers. In episode four, we switch to the fashion sector, talking to Joe Godden, the founder of Ruby Moon Activewear. Joe talked about her background in fashion and how that led to starting a company to show how a fashion business can bring products to life. That means products have a benefit for people and our planet, instead of degrading the environment and people's working conditions. Joe heard about a project recovering ghost nets, the expensive fishing nets that are accidentally lost by fishermen. After finding out about developments to recycle the discarded nets into high-quality textile fibres and fabrics, she pestered the organisation to make sure she was the first designer to use it. The whole sort of issue around valuing um, your clothing um, is very much at the forefront of the sustainable fashion movement. Um, if you love, you know, you should only buy, be buying something if you absolutely love it and you're going to get um, hundreds of wares out of it. Um, we just really do not have the resources to carry on producing garments the way we are and and you treating them as just, you know, just frankly, they're disposable, as you say, one wear and, and it's off and it's in the bin. And these these garments aren't even being, you know, sometimes they're ending up in landfill there's absolutely no reuse consideration going on at all or even re-wearing so there has to be a change in our consciousness about how we treat the our clothing not just our clothing basically everything we can that we're buying and consuming right now there has to be a change um in the psychology of it all yeah, and that's also really why when we develop, you know, make our clothing, we know that our garments are going to last and last and last. You know, we consider the stitching. We make sure it's not going to fall apart. And our fabric is certified to be twice as strong as other nylon lycras on the market, and that's to chlorine, to sunlight, to salt water. So we know that our garments are going to last a really long time. And that's what people are buying into. And if you consider it as a price per wear, almost, um, some people say sustainable fashion is expensive. But when you look at it like that, price per wear, it isn't. In fact, it's a much better investment. And you're not polluting, you know, waterways and, and our water supply. And you're not creating misery in the supply chain. So that's the economics of it is that it's a price per wear ruby moon is circular in other ways too 100% of net profits is reinvested in women entrepreneurs in developing nations through lend with care a charity many of these entrepreneurs are funding housing nutrition education and other community focused projects Moving on to episode five, we talked to eco-designer Katie Beverly from PDR, based at Cardiff Metropolitan University. I love that Katie describes herself as a critical friend of the circular economy. In the next clip, Katie tells us how to use eco-design strategies and mentions her favourite tool, the lids wheel. Have a listen. Yeah, I mean, I'm about to now do... Um 
go away probably from being a bit more of a standard eco-designer to to something that I think is really important in terms of in terms of both eco-design and circular economy. Um, so it's fairly straightforward to basically go and find design strategies for eco-design. I mean, my, my preferred tool is something called the LIDS wheel, which is the life cycle in design wheel. And for every stage in the life cycle, it will tell you, think about these things. Um, so it's relatively easy to find those sorts of things. And it even tells you at the beginning, think about, do you really need this product? Could you make it into a service? The one thing it doesn't say is, how well are you taking your consumers into account? And how well are you taking the rest of the people that are going to be important in making this into account? So if you make a change, how will it affect your value network? And are you sure that you're not just pushing the environmental impact or the resource efficiency that you're saving onto somebody else? So my first thing would be find the important stakeholders and start collaborating with them as soon as you possibly can. And that includes your users. So think about the idea of user-centered design, not only once you've made your product so you can test it with users, but actually even at the point where you're conceptualizing what it should be. It's particularly important now because a lot of circular economy, new business models and particularly new services require a change in consumer behavior. And if you're not confident that that change in consumer behavior meets the needs of the users, then you could launch something and find it's ahead of its time, doesn't quite meet what the market needs right now. And it might be brilliant in five years' time, but in five years' time, you've just thrown five years' worth of money at it. So I think my biggest piece of advice to anybody who's thinking about innovation in this area is get talking to the people that you're both designing for and designing with. So start to collaborate both up and down your value network and in fact, all across your value network. Katie's advice is to translate product or service requirements into latent needs rather than direct needs. Importantly, she stresses the benefits of collaborating with a wide range of stakeholders as well as users especially if your design needs a change in user behaviour. We talk about remanufacturing and the need for government policies that support long-term systemic approaches. Katie also tells us about the design processes underpinning her favourite circular economy example, the River Simple hydrogen-powered car. In episode 6, we talk to another designer, Adam Fairweather. Sustainability and making a positive impact is core to Adam's work. Adam and his business partner are developing Smile Plastics as a circular economy business, designed around permaculture principles. Just as importantly, Smile Plastics aims to achieve positive social impacts. Adam believes we should be able to find beauty in what we do, and that material language can, can communicate important messages to everyone. For example, good design can talk to people by creating socially, emotionally and industrially durable products. In episode 7, we chat with Katie Whalen, founder of In The Loop. Katie's aiming to make the circular economy more understandable, engaging and, crucially, make it fun. 
She's developed two circular economy games. Firstly, In the Loop, which focuses on circular concepts and strategies. And recently, her new game, Risk and Race. This explores circular business models and their impact on business performance. Katie tells us a bit about how the game works and shares some of her experience working with companies involved in product recovery and reuse. We both liked Ken Webster's Two Rules for the Circular Economy from the interview with Ken on Katie's Getting in the Loop podcast. Yeah, and Ken Webster was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was saying like his two rules, the number one rule is don't kill your customer and don't kill their custom. And I think, yeah, it really illustrates this, you know, focusing on the people and not just uh, not just this this idea, but really focusing on the purpose and why and, and who who is actually involved um, in the circular economy. Moving on to episode eight, we get to talk to Elaine Kerr, who helps businesses and other organisations to turn waste and underused materials into valuable resources. Elaine works for International Synergies, probably the first organisation to connect businesses by matchmaking to set up local resource exchanges. International Synergies works with public and private sector clients across five continents. And the last episode in this Best Bits feature is my interview with Lucy Antal, a food campaigning charity, Feedback Global. I really enjoyed chatting to Lucy, and if you want to be inspired by a fantastic range of circular ideas, I recommend you, you listen to this. Here's a clip covering just one of the many projects Lucy's involved with, the Gleaning Network. Well, the Gleaning Network has been running uh, for about four or five years now I think and it started out as an as a as a as I say as a response to overproduction and surplus on farms and as a way of resurrecting the old practices which is after the harvest uh, people would be encouraged to go through the fields gleaning for the spare vegetables or the spare wheat or whatever so it's it's an old it's an old technique and in some ways some of the stuff that um, I'm getting involved with Alchemic Kitchen is also about reviving some of the old traditions and uh, techniques around preserving and keeping food uh, to make it last longer and getting people thinking a bit more about long-term usage of food rather than this instant thing. So the Gleaning Network we've got um, in Kent and Sussex and near Brighton and we've also got a London one and then we have uh, Gleaning Northwest and we we sometimes in the Northwest become a little a little jaded and a little sad because we are kings of brassicas. You know, you want cabbage? We are your people. So we can always get your cabbage and cauliflowers and greens and kale. And then we see our colleagues down in Kent and Sussex going, oh, we've got, we've had to pick so many cherries. And you're like, mm, cherries, I'd love to have lots of cherries. Or, oh, we've had to pick lots of blueberries. You're like, mm, blueberries. <laughs> so they get all the lovely fruit and we get all the greens. So yeah, but I digress. It's still a fabulous thing to do. Um, we like we work together with communities and also with volunteers, and this has been supported a lot through uh, RAP and through other organisations like the Evan Cornish uh, Foundation as well have helped us to be able to run these activities. And we try and get out minimum of once a month, but quite often, particularly at this time of year, it's a bit more than that. So, for example, on Monday, uh, a group of about 35 of us 
went out to a farm near Preston and we picked savoy cabbages and we picked about a ton of savoy cabbages and that was collected by fair share and has gone off to be redistributed to community spaces around the place but the advantage for us about doing this with volunteers is it's a lovely way to get people out and about we were working specifically this week with um, military veterans and their families so we had dads and mums who've been in the armed services um, bringing their children out to the field. Um, everybody got thoroughly muddy. Everybody got covered in mud. Um, there was one little boy who fell over and we had to cling film his feet to put them back in the Wellington boots because <laughs> so, there was so much mud. Um, but they had such a great time. And the children in particular were really keen and really interested. And it's great to see... Um, the younger generation really getting out there and understanding this is where your food comes from, which is partly why we do it as well like that. And we put on a lunch and uh, we had a hilarious field kitchen of two trestle tables and a gas burner. Um, and we made a lunch uh, under interesting windy weather conditions. And we also had some people came over from Manchester and we had a few folk from, as I say, from Liverpool as well and from the university. And it's just a real mix of people all getting together, a bit of fresh air, and you feel like you're doing something worthwhile and useful at the same time. And then we took the food, um, some of the cabbages, and we used them in a cookery workshop on yesterday. So again, that's showing people the journey. And when we were feeding people out in the field on Monday, we were literally using cabbages that we just picked two minutes previously giving them a quick wash and then we were using those in some dal and also some uh, fresh cabbage salads as well so it's just a lovely way of showing people exactly how your food can be as fresh as possible and what you can do other than just boil a cabbage so after listening to the recap of the first episodes maybe you're wondering if you're missing out on circular business opportunities perhaps your competitors are going circular you could be using the circular economy to help your business be more profitable, resilient and sustainable. If you're not in business, you could still be using your own ideas to start something exciting. Being part of the solution, not part of the problem. Every week I'm seeing fantastic examples of startups, small businesses and social enterprises getting on board, using circular approaches to build a better world. If you want to find out more, have a look at our website, www.rethinkglobal.info, or get in touch to ask us about talks, workshops and coaching. You can email us, hello at rethinkglobal.info, or tweet us, rethink underscore global. We've put the show notes and links to the businesses we feature on our website, and you can find the sign-up links to stay in touch with our fortnightly newsletter. See you next time. <laughs>